Hello, it's Tom Slater here. This week on Spiked, we launched our new daily newsletter today on Spiked. Thank you to everyone who's signed up so far. I hope you're enjoying it. And to those of you who haven't signed up, stop what you're doing right now and do so immediately. It's a roundup of all of the content that we publish each day, sent out at 6pm. And there's also some exclusive commentary from the Spike team, which you won't read elsewhere. We're publishing more and more these days, so it's the best way to make sure that you never miss an article or a podcast or an essay. And it's also 100% completely free. So if you haven't signed up yet, just go to spiked-online.com slash newsletters and click on today on Spiked. Again, that's spiked-online.com slash newsletters and today on Spiked to sign up. Thanks so much. Have a great weekend and enjoy the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Spiked podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and joining me this week, as ever, we have Spiked's deputy editor, Tom Slater. Hello. And Spiked columnist, Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on the show, free speech on campus, vaccine passports and the BBC's Islamophobia controversy. The Education Secretary, Gavin Williamson, has now said that he wants to ensure free speech on campus under the threat of a fine. Universities simply are not upholding freedom to debate. The cancel culture movement think that it's reasonable to obliterate the views of people they disagree with. There's no evidence that there is a freedom of speech crisis on campus. The government has proposed a number of new measures designed to protect academic freedom and uphold free speech on university campuses. Education Secretary Gavin Williamson has warned of a chilling effect on campuses of unacceptable silencing and censoring. Academics, students and visiting speakers will be able to seek legal redress if they have suffered from free speech infringements. And the government will also appoint a free speech champion, which can impose fines on universities and students' unions who are found to be in breach of a new free speech duty. But many have objected to the plans. The National Union of Students says that there is no evidence of a freedom of expression crisis on campus. And the Lecturers' Union, the UCU, has accused the government of fighting phantom threats to free speech. Tom, what are your thoughts on this? Well, I think that it's just so interesting the kind of response that this is stirred up because I'm sure we'll get into the subject of these particular proposals put forward by the government whether or not we think they're going to work whether or not we think they're going to backfire whether or not we think they're a good idea or not I'm generally quite skeptical but what has been demonstrated by the backlash is how much of an issue this actually is how much censorship on campus is tolerated excuses are made for it and I think that you see in the kind of denialism if you like in response to these announcements how little belief these people have in freedom of speech in the first place. So as you say, you've had this claim that there's just zero evidence of it. This is what the National Union of of Students said. And yet we can list off the top of our heads, person after person, academic, student, speaker, who has been no platformed, physically intimidated, or otherwise handed off campus. Selena Todd from the University of Oxford has, has been doing the rounds. Julie Bindle, of course, has been no platformed at more universities than Tommy Robinson, it seems like these days, Mm. down to Amber Rudd and Jordan Peterson. You know, you kind of see the evidence yourself. And also at this point, there's been loads of research into this. It is clearly an observable problem. Our own free speech university rankings, last time we did it in 2018, more than 50% of universities are outright banning speech and ideas. Policy Exchange had a nice report last year which said that I think it was around half of academics would actually feel uncomfortable sharing lunch 
with a known leave supporter. So again, on every level from the kind of explicit bans through to that kind of broader climate of self-censorship and demonising of dissent, it's a clearly observable problem. And I think when you see people like the NUS or the Corbyn Easters or some of the leading universities claiming that it isn't a thing, that's just because they fundamentally support it and they can't find a way of actually saying that. Because that's the weird thing about freedom of speech is that there's so many people, particularly on left of politics, who really don't believe in it whatsoever, but it's still just about the kind of thing that you get in trouble for openly opposing. So yes, we should and will get into the wisdom of these proposals in general, but I think the backlash tells you how deep the kind of a liberalism runs, not just on campus, but in wider society where so many other people are making excuses for it. And you can tell, you know, based on some just some of the targets you were talking about, Tom, just how much worse this issue has got. I mean, the fact is that five years ago, we were debating about, you know, whether there should be free speech for fascists. And now the censorious tactics have moved towards no platform for feminists. That, you know, there is not even any discussion at all as to whether kind of these figures from the right can appear on campus. And you have, you know, left-wing historians like Selena Todd, who you mentioned, who are now seen as beyond the pale, who are disinvited from speaking at events, and who have other academics writing open letters denouncing them, often preventing them from speaking on subjects that have nothing to do with the thing that has caused controversy. You know, so Selena Todd can't even talk about her work on history and social mobility without people denouncing her for transphobia. And so for people to claim that there is is no problem is is absolutely surreal. I mean, you'll have all these kind of bogus arguments about, well, there have only been X number of events that have officially been cancelled. And the obvious reason for that is because these events are just strangled at birth. Often they're mm. strangled not just by kind of what people caricature as snowflake students, but by bureaucracy, by people anticipating a backlash, anticipating a mob response. But to say that this is not real, it's just, you know, living mm. a complete fantasy. And I do love that idea that just because it's a small proportion doesn't mean it's an issue. I mean, the vast majority of events on a campus are going to be like, you know, a geography conference or a visiting mathematics lecturer. The point mm. is when it's controversial and time again, when it is controversial, you do see those kinds of responses that you're talking about. How do you quantify in the stats and tables the fact of a general sense of self-censorship on campus, mm. of the feeling among students that actually they won't even bother to try to put on the event because they know that they'll have to jump through the seven different policy hoops that students' unions put in place from vetting speakers to this policy to that policy. How do you show that in a kind of data set and prove to the NUS or any of these kind of doubters that there's an issue on free speech? You've, everybody now sensible knows that there is a general atmosphere of censorship and a general atmosphere of a you can't say that approach in university. But I'm so against this proposal. I'm not, I'm even just skeptical. I think it's terrible. And the reason why is because if you look on gov.uk where they've announced this, one of the quotes from Gavin Williamson is really telling. So he says, you know, things that we agree with, deeply worried about the chilling effect of campuses and unacceptable silencing and censoring. Good. Yes. The intention for free speech is there. But the answer is that is why we must strengthen it, free speech and higher education, by bolstering the existing legal duties and ensuring strong, robust action is taken if they are breached. We have always said that you cannot legislate your way out of the issue of, of censorship on campus and more intervention 
this time from the state is not going to help more restriction. It's not going to help foster a climate of free speech. We've always said that it's about fostering a political climate of free speech in university, not simply implementing more policy or more legal duties. But it's also this idea, this kind of sort of American obsession with being litigious about how to fix problems, taking people to court is distasteful to me. But more importantly, the issue is, is never really just about the one person who's being banned. So, you know, when Julie Bindle or Amber Rudd or any of the people that Thomas mentioned got banned, that individual instance is important. It's an example of censorship, but just kind of getting compensation or some kind of formal apology for that banning through a legal route is not going to do anything because the broader point, the more important point for me anyway, has always been the question of the sort of indictment of the audience that that, that banning has within it. The idea that students can't listen to opposing views. So just <laughs> having some kind of legal recourse or, or actually a legal threat about the individual instance of people being banned is not going to change the wider culture on campus. And just, I mean, it is a bit rich. It's ridiculous that you would have a government in s saying that they're going to impose legal duties on universities around free speech at the same time as carrying out more moves to make more things a hate crime, moves to censor more things that we can and can't say on social media. The prevent policy has been thrown around by lots of people. I mean, the government has got a bad track record when it comes to defending free speech in wider society. So I'm, forgive me if I'm more than a little sceptical that this is going to work just on the basis of doing a kind of, I think, some shallow moves towards pretending that they care about free speech on campus. Tom? I agree with the fact that you can't really have a pro-freedom clampdown. I think it's a contradiction in terms. I also think, talking about the American example, their issue with campus censorship really came before ours, at least in the kind of modern woke iteration. And public universities over there are obviously bound by the First Amendment. They're not allowed to censor in the way that even universities in this country have latitude to do so. And they have huge problems with this. The problem is if, if it can't be formal, then it will become informal. If it's not a speech code, it will become a mob. So all of these things are, are quite clear cut. I don't think the proposals are kind of like as outrageous as some people are kind of presenting. I mean, there has been a legal duty on universities to uphold freedom of speech since the 80s. This is broadly speaking about toughening it, though I don't necessarily think particularly discussions about fining and delisting universities seems to me a pretty worrying encroachment on academic autonomy and the autonomy of these institutions, particularly with students' unions, I think, because even though they have in large part basically become arms of the university, it tends to be where they get most of their money from these days. At the same time, they are nominally democratic institutions. And just because they're dominated by small cliques who are very unrepresentative, I don't think interfering with that is a particularly good idea, particularly if you want to change the, the culture on campus. So on the one hand, I don't think these policies are going to work. I think there is a threat there of damaging the independence of these institutions. But at the same time, I think it's quite clear that something needs to be done. And what that is, it's very difficult to know because we can talk about winning the argument for freedom, which I think is fundamental. If freedom doesn't, you know, live in the hearts and minds of people, then it is meaningless. You know, it, that censorious instinct will express itself on a campus in different ways than we might have experienced at the moment. But at the same time, the universities do feel very much lost to this ideology. I mean, the kind of resistance that we're seeing, the denialism that we're seeing. And as you were saying, Fraser, you know, it's gone over the course of, even just over the course of the time that, I think I've been writing about this from, as you say, kind of free speech for fascists in the far right to feminists, to free speech for free speech society. Some of this is mm. risible. I wrote about this recently that the student union led clampdown on free speech societies at Lincoln, Bristol, Manchester 
and elsewhere. My favourite was a conservative society at Lincoln, which had its social media privileges revoked because it tweeted its free speech university rankings profile. (laughs) (laughs) And the SU kicked it off of its accounts for a while. So this is really, really entrenched. And whilst I don't think the legal route is going to, is going to solve it, I do think that on the question of kind of winning hearts and minds and the arguments, etc., that's a very steep hill to climb as well at this point, it feels like. I know we're living under lockdown for the time being at least, but that's no reason not to take care of yourself and stay looking your best, even if it's just for those endless Zoom calls. If you haven't already, you need to start shaving with Harry's. The smoothness and the comfort of their blades is really second to none. When you shave with Harry's, you'll not only look fresh, but feel fresh too. To ensure they get the best quality products, Harry's bought their own factory in Germany that's been making blades for over 100 years. The factory team has more than 600 engineers, designers, craftsmen and chemists who make Harry's products from the finest materials and ingredients. All of this ensures a quality shave at a fair price. When you sign up to Harry's, you'll get everything you need for a close comfortable shave. The razor's got a weighted ergonomic handle. It's got five precision engineered blades with a lubricating strip and a trimmer blade. You also get a rich lathering shave gel and a travel blade cover in the package. So get started shaving with Harry's today by claiming your trial set for just £4.95. Support the Spikes podcast and get your trial set delivered to you including that razor handle, five-blade cartridge, foaming shave gel, and travelled blade cover, by going to harrys.com slash spiked right now. That's harrys.com slash spiked. The government has been issuing mixed messages over whether it plans to introduce vaccine passports in the UK which would allow people who have been vaccinated to access goods, services and work. Earlier this month, Vaccines Minister Nadeem Zahawi appeared to rule out the idea completely, saying that compulsory vaccination is not something we do in this country. But at the weekend, Foreign Secretary Dominic Raab said plans were still under consideration. Meanwhile, the private sector has started to draw up employment contracts with no jab, no job clauses, and many representatives for the hospitality and events industries say that vaccine passports could offer a route back to normality. Zahawi says that these decisions should be left up to businesses. Ella, what are your thoughts on this? Well, just on the face of it, I think there's lots of people who would balk at the idea of vaccinations being compulsory and obviously the idea of vaccine passports is a tricky one because it's not about sticking a needle in people's arm by force but it is about creating not just incentives but coercive means through which unless you're going to just be okay with having no job or being okay with not being able to go into the shops and live like a hermit you have to do this in order to function in society and have the same resources as other people. The vaccine rollout has been on the whole really successful, a real Mm. victory for the government. Most people understand the power this has to free us up in relation to fighting back against the virus and are very positive about it. Introducing this idea of a coercive measure really dampens that quite important positive public spirit because the insinuation behind it is that you can't trust people to make sensible decisions about this, Mm. that yet again, the government has to step in and force people to do the right thing. Now, Tempering that is the fact that some of the stats that have come out from 
the way in which the vaccine rollout has played out among different groups have been, let's say, interesting. For example, you know, across the kind of country, it's been quite positive, quite high, but in certain areas among certain groups. So, for example, in London, the take up of the vaccine is lower than the rest of the country in comparison. Among ethnic minorities, it's much lower. Among ethnic minorities working in healthcare roles, it's lower than their white colleagues. And so there are questions about why certain groups are not taking up the vaccine, why they're either skeptical about it or against it. But just the blanket approach of the government taking this idea that you would just simply implement on a broad scale without looking at focused ways in which you could informally fix this issue is disappointing. And it's also not helped by the fact that people like the boss of Pimlico Plumbers, who is never off the television, my God, is getting a huge amount of free advertising out of this pandemic, with no consideration to what precedent it might set for workers' rights, demanding that people toe the line and basically give up their employers' access to their health data. I mean, how how will you prove this vaccine passport? Rob Lyons, who has been writing some great columns on Spiked throughout the pandemic, makes the point, will you have just have a document that's easy to counterfeit or will you actually get biometrics involved in this which is again it's like the practical coming back into the political in what reasonable manner would this be implemented and so it's one of those things where i'm i think it's positive and we should be open to the idea of practical means through which we would start to reopen society but it just feels lazy disappointing and a kind of rerun of the same kind of mistrust of the public that has colored a lot of the government's moves throughout this pandemic surely there are more innovative more freedom loving ways of dealing with the practical implications of vaccine take up tom i think it's really quite striking just to kind of double speak from the government on this issue of course you had nadim zahawi kind of originally float the idea then very quickly backtrack we saw over the weekend Dominic Raab suggest that the question of domestic vaccine passports wouldn't necessarily be ruled out. That was quickly slapped down. But what's become quite clear is whilst the government has ruled out issuing its own kind of domestic vaccine passports, it has been issuing a hell of a lot of grants to companies who mm. are developing technology for them and is reportedly actually in talks with various different firms in order to help bring these things about. And I think it underlines, first of all, as Ella was saying, the threat of these vaccine passports is very, very real to to civil liberties as a discriminatory impact, even in, in the sense of different minorities, given the differing rates of kind of vaccine hesitancy, as Ella was talking about. But I think it also kind of underlines something that we've learned over the course of the past couple of years, which is that the threat to freedom is nowadays often coming from almost a kind of privatised tyranny, if you yeah. like. You have this partly in the discussions around big tech censorship, etc., where you again you have these billionaires controlling what we can and can't say in what is now the public sphere, but also a kind of awkward way in which that works hand in glove with the political establishment. You know, the coziness between Silicon Valley and the Democratic Party, something we've talked about, and um, the fusing of those two basically in Joe Biden's presidency. You're seeing a kind of similar thing with this vaccine passports issue, where basically you have a deeply authoritarian measure, which deep down you feel that the government is kind of sympathetic to because it wants people to go back out there into businesses. Um, it wants people to feel confident. Again, you sense there's tacit support for this, basically. But I don't want to carry the can for it. So it's almost outsourced to the private mm. sector. And I think when, in terms of fighting for freedom and challenging authoritarianism, that has never only ever been limited to just challenging the state. It comes in various different forms. And, and that's always important to notice. But I think particularly in the moment that we're in, people who kind of think that the only threat to liberty can only come from the state, which of course we've seen in a very real and tremendous way over the course of the past year in a way that is previously unimaginable. 
there's also this kind of dual threat there of the state and the private sector kind of working hand in glove in quite stealthy ways. And I think you really see that reflected in the whole vaccine passports discussion, which is, has been pretty dishonest from the government, it's got to be said. Yeah. And I, I think the thing that is, that's really struck me, and it, this was striking pretty much last summer when there wasn't really much going on with the virus. And it's, and it's very striking now that we have the arrival of the vaccines is that often the desire for restrictions, the desire for monitoring, surveillance, various kind of authoritarian measures actually doesn't seem to go away as the threat recedes because, you know, the vaccines are wonderful. You know, the vaccines should be the thing that sets us free, that allows us to put COVID behind us and treat it in the words of the chief medical officer. It will be a bit like the flu, you know, kill roughly as many people, things that we don't bat an eyelid over normally. And yet at the same time, the prospect of this is being met with yet more ideas for how to control and monitor people. And I think we have to really stand against that and say, when this is over, we want the restoration of all our freedoms. We don't want a new normal. We want to go back to an improved version of the old normal. We should be freer than we were in 2019, not less free. And so, you know, that really underscores how actually a lot of the discussion around the pandemic is a political battle, not a scientific one. Because if you have the vaccine and, you know, I will get the vaccine when it's offered, what do I have to worry about that someone else hasn't had it? It's not a threat to me. It's not a threat to my safety. It's not a threat to anyone else's safety if they've also, you know, taken up the vaccine. So we do have to challenge these ideas, challenge the kind of bogus arguments around safety that usually justify them and say that, you know, we should be free after this when this is over. Ella? It's a bit like the whole issue of censorship and free speech that we've just been talking about. If you are trying to deal with a problem of people either being sceptical about something, whether it's free speech or a vaccine, implementing coercive measures to try and fix that problem only deepens the problem. So the scepticism isn't going to be fixed by either a government or employer forcing people to take it. It has to be one on the political basis. And actually, the really strong political argument, which is that you taking this vaccine, particularly among young people, actually, this is a societal push. It's a big picture issue that actually what you're doing by taking this vaccine is allowing the rest of society to open up. I mean, that's how, that's how vaccines work. It's a very positive, very persuasive argument. And if the government just did more of that, you know, more positive political messaging around this and making clear that this is a bid for freedom, that the vaccine is the practical aspect of how we get out of this. But actually the bigger picture of how we're getting out of this is, as you say, Fraser, reclaiming the idea of of freedom and what we need to do to become free. But if you, like many of the laws that have been instituted over the last year or so, you have to ask the question, when would the vaccine passport stop? When would that law be rescinded? Mm. When would that policy be taken off the books? And if we're to go by the way in which the government's acted over the last year, you know, being free and easy with implementing new restrictions, the answer would be, well, they probably won't for a very long time. And that in itself is a reason to oppose them. I love to learn something new every day. Knowing that there's always more knowledge out there is incredibly empowering. So this year, I'm continuing to learn with purpose using The Great Courses Plus, and I want you to join me. There's so much fascinating knowledge that we can tap into. I've just been listening to The Great Courses Plus course on capitalism versus socialism, comparing economic systems. 
This course gives a fantastic overview of the great economic thinkers and how their ideas played out in practice. Ultimately, every economic decision boils down to the question of what makes a good society. After the catastrophe of the past year or so, this is a question we need to ask ourselves more than ever. This course will give you all the tools you need to translate your values into practical economic ideas. With The Great Courses Plus, you get unlimited streaming access to thousands of video courses on virtually anything that interests you. You can learn how to master Tai Chi or public speaking, take your oceanography knowledge to greater depths, or learn how to read body language. The Great Courses Plus has something for everyone, and it's all thoroughly vetted, fact-based information that you can trust. It comes from some of the best professors and top experts in the field all over the world. And when you download the Great Courses Plus app, you can watch or listen on any device. You can learn anytime, anywhere. So, what purpose waits for you? Sign up for the Great Courses Plus and find out. If you visit our special URL, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash spiked, you'll get a 14-day trial with unlimited access for free. You don't want to pass this up. So go now to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash spiked. The BBC has been accused of mistreating the newly appointed head of the Muslim Council of Britain. Over a 100 public figures have signed a letter denouncing Emma Barnett's interview with Zara Mohammed on Women's Hour as strikingly hostile. They've accused the BBC of reinforcing damaging and prejudicial tropes about Islam and Muslim women. Last week, the BBC deleted a clip of the interview from social media in which Barnett repeatedly asked Mohammed how many female imams there are in Britain. The removal of the clip in response to social media pressure ran counter to the BBC's own editorial guidelines, which say that there's a presumption that material published online will become part of a permanently accessible archive and should be preserved in as complete a state as possible. Ella, what have you made of this row? Well, I wonder, has any of these people ever listened to Emma Barnett or watched her on the telly before? <laughs> because her entire style is to be hostile. She is like a political... Pitbull. She reminds me of Andrew Neil. She's mm. terrifying to come up against because she's one of these journalists and now presenters who has a file either actually on her desk or in her head on you and will get you on the question that you don't want to be got on. It's what's propelled her to the position she's in on Women's Hour now. You know, I don't agree with a lot of her political positions, but she's one hell of a presenter. So the idea that you would not prepare yourself to suffer some kind of interrogation at the hands of her in an interview is just pathetic. And I think a lot of the complaints here are less to do with the fact that, uh, you know, she asked a rather uninteresting question about female imams. But the letter published in Galdem suggested that simply because Zara Mohammed was the first female in this position, that she should be given an easy ride. That actually, mm. politically, Emma Barnett made a mistake by not you know, extending the hand of sisterhood to this woman in a new position. I mean, is that what the news is supposed to be about? It's actually quite remarkable, the response to this, given the kind of, in a different context, the panic among these similar commentators about impartiality, about fake news, about the role of the media, to then suggest that Woman's Hour, which, like it or loathe it, is a pretty influential programme, 
that it should be just about facilitating the good feeling among a certain section of society is nauseating. And on the thornier issue of the question of female imams, if you are, as Zara Muhammad is, elected to or appointed to a position where you are meant to lead the Muslim Council of Britain, it's not an unreasonable question. And if you're going to go on Women's Hour, which mm. is all about sometimes whinging, sometimes making serious points about women's role in society. It is about women, you know. Yeah, it's completely. <laughs> this is like, what the hell? What was she meant to ask her about? You know, it, and... It is an issue and you don't have to be an Islamophobe to know that there are debates to be had about women's role in religion, particularly in Islam, and about the way in which women are treated. So all of these things should be up for debate and it's completely reasonable for someone like Amber Barnett to ask these questions. It shows a, a real brittleness, a real kind of fragileness around the people like Zara Muhammad and the people who've written this letter, that they expect to be treated with respect in a political position, but can't handle any kind of scrutiny. I actually want to read out that section of the letter just because it is so weird. You know, it says mm. the framing of the interview mirrored the style and tone of an accountability interview with a politician, which, you know, not unusual. She's a public figure rather than authentically recognizing and engaging in what this represented for British Muslim women. And it's, it's just so clear that they expect. Zara Muhammad to go unchallenged. And more importantly, they expect the religion that she represents to go mm. unchallenged. And that is, as we've discussed many times in this podcast before, that is the real meaning of the word Islamophobe. It's ring fencing the religion from criticism. It's not necessarily about anti-Muslim bigotry or racism, which you know should absolutely be deplored compared with questions about religion that really should be asked. And and I thought Emma Barnett actually put it well when she, she actually phrased the question of the question of female imams. She said, is this about Islam or is this about patriarchy more broadly? Now, she actually gave Muhammad a route out, <laughs> an escape route, but instead she just kind of evaded the question, mm. said it wasn't really her role, pretended that there isn't really an issue in Islam or in society. And yeah, you know, it, these kinds of interviews, it's, it just struck me listening to it, just how normal an interview it was. Mm. And I honestly just couldn't believe the kind of letter that I was reading. Mm -hmm. I mean, even more scary was the BBC's response. Why, why did the BBC feel that it had to back down and suddenly not hold someone in a position of power accountable anymore, simply because a handful of people have, have been upset by it? I mean, the problem is the BBC have now got form on this front. Mm. So last year I wrote about a situation in which the Muslim Council of Britain again complained about a headline on a story which was reporting on the inquiry into the Manchester Arena bombing. And on the first day, an eyewitness was reported to have said that he saw Salman Abadi praying before the attack. So this obviously made the headline. It's something which has been said by an eyewitness at this inquiry. The Muslim Council of Britain said that this was basically Islamophobic, <laughs> that this was dangerous and all the rest of it. And the BBC ended up editing that headline. The Guardian, funnily enough, which had something similar, ended up sticking to its guns. And we've seen example and example of this, funnily enough, often in relation to the Muslim Council of Britain, where you do basically have them trying to usher in a kind of backdoor blasphemy law when it comes to discussion of not just Islamic practice and theology and individuals, but even just kind of Islamism and terrorism. It seems to be something which they seem incredibly touchy about the way it's being talked about because they seem to think people are so stupid that they'll read something about a terrorist and assume all Muslims are like that. So they compiled these long reports, you know, having a go at everyone from 
the BBC for posting a picture of a jihadist while he was in Mecca through to Joanna Lumley for doing a documentary in Kyrgyzstan. Like there's, there's almost no differentiation. And I think it's, it's something which is really going to contribute to a chilling of, of discussion. And I think on the one hand, it's kind of this attempt to ring fence an ideology from criticism, but also to ring fence certain groups from criticism. You know, I mean, one thing by trying to suggest that by asking the new head of the MCB some tough questions, Emma Barnett was basically engaged in some Islamophobic act is to conflate that organization with Muslims in general as well. Mm. I mean, most Muslims in this country have no idea what the MCB is. It is, in my view, has a very questionable history, particularly in its recent attempts to kind of chill press freedom by the back door. But again, you kind of elevate these sort of self-appointed community groups by suggesting that everything they have to say is holy writ and any challenge to them is obviously generated by racism. And as, as we've been talking about here, because there is this conflation between the religion of, of Islam and race, which is something which often happens in kind of identitarian circles, funnily enough, is something that's mirrored on the far right, this to conflate those two things and to racialize that group of people. But nevertheless, one of the things that's really striking about that is just the, the paternalism of it, the mm. really disgusting bigotry of low expectations, which is to say that in a multi-faith, multicultural society, this particular group are so vulnerable, are so incapable of having their particular beliefs discussed, challenged, talked about in a sort of tolerant marketplace of ideas type situation that we need to avoid that at all costs, either because it's going to upset them or it's going to inflame some kind of mob out there who are going to see any discussion of Islam decide to launch some sort of anti-Muslim pogrom. There's really ugly undertone to this desire, as I say, not just to kind of ring fence this ideology from criticism, but even to ring fence these certain groups from criticism. It's all motored by a deeply paternalistic ugly and kind of racialized view of, of this particular issue. And the fact that the BBC have given into it again is very irritating. Ella? On the issue that Tom raises of the sort of bigotry of low expectations, there's a real shift in the way in which we treat, you know, women like this who have gotten into positions of power that women have never broken into before, you know, no matter how small, no matter how paltry. Similar thing has been happening with Kamala Harris being elected as the vice president. There's this sort of suggestion that if a woman achieves a position that no woman has ever achieved before, that everyone's got to be kind of really quiet, really sweet, really nice about it. And there's no expectation that actually the phrase that I hate, breaking through those glass ceilings, metaphorical glass ceilings, should be a painless experience. When in actual fact, if you become elected or appointed or whatever to a position of influence or power in you know years gone by women would have kind of steeled themselves to the fact that they were going to be having a fight that this actually position was going to be allow them to butt heads against people who would have ignored them previously and so you would be kind of relishing shouldn't you you know ch chances and opportunities to get stuck into things with presenters or news reporters i mean the combative nature of news is something that's kind of almost been pathologized now you know that we've seen the whole fuss over gb news and stop funding hate and the idea that any kind of opinionated news outlet would be sort of tantamount to harm or prejudice is particularly a view that gets held against women that like any woman that ever has a harsh or a tough run with a presenter in a show is suffering from at the hands of the patriarchy rather than actually asserting the fact that women are tough and strong enough to be able to handle difficult situations as much as men is perpetuating this really quite neo-Victorian disgusting view of women as sort of not being able and up for a fight. When if you get to a position like Zara Muhammad get in, you better be up for a fight because there are lots of people who are going to disagree with you. 
Thanks for listening to the Spike podcast. We'll be back next week. If you enjoyed the show, why not check out some of Spike's other podcasts in the meantime? We have the Brendan O'Neill show in which Spike's editor talks all about the big ideas, bad ideas, problems and controversies of life in the 21st century, all with the help of an esteemed guest. Then there's Culture Wars, hosted by Spiked columnist, stand-up comic and satirist Andrew Doyle. This monthly podcast is the perfect antidote to the woke idiocy taking over our lives. And last but not least, you should check out Last Orders, a podcast hosted by Tom Slater and Chris Snowden. Last Orders is all about freedom, the nanny state and censorship. And there's a lot about coronavirus these days too. You can listen to all these shows with your favourite podcast provider or you can find them on the Spiked website at spiked-online.com. Thanks for listening. See you next week.